One day in the grocery store, a lady bumped into her pastor. She loved her church, and she was very thankful for the impact its members were having on her life. Well, as she complimented the pastor on his wonderful church, she blurted out, Oh, Pastor Tom, I just love your body. Oops. Well, of course, she was referring to the body of Christ, but that's not how it was heard by the grocery store bystanders. It created an embarrassing moment. The New Testament does speak of the church metaphorically as the body of Christ. At his incarnation, God clothed himself in a human body to come to earth and touch and help and heal. Now today, Jesus carries on his work through another body, the church. Just as our spirit and minds interact with our surroundings through our body, likewise, the church is the means by which Jesus interacts with the needy world. We are the hands and feet and mouth of Jesus. 1 Corinthians 12 teaches us that the Spirit of Christ works through the body of Christ. I hope when people look at our church, they'll say, Lord, I just love your body. Chapter 12 is divided into two parts. Verses 1 through 11 discuss our gifts, while verses 12 through 31 talk about our place. Chapter 12 is about using our gifts and finding our place. Verse 1 begins, Now concerning spiritual gifts, brethren, I do not want you to be ignorant. The Holy Spirit was active in the church at Corinth. Spiritual gifts were commonplace, but they weren't always being coupled with common sense. There was an ignorance over their proper use, and thus spiritual gifts were abused and misused in Corinth. And today, sadly, there is still much ignorance among Christians over the charismata, or the spiritual gifts. You know, folks tend to go to extremes, either charismania on the one end or charisphobia on the other end. I grew up in a church dominated by charisphobia. Spiritual gifts were explained away as having passed with the apostles. We were erroneously taught that the compilation of the New Testament made supernatural gifts obsolete. And yet nowhere does the scripture suggest that healings and miracles and tongues and the like have expired. Rather, these are gifts every Christian should still seek. Yet as soon as I branched out beyond my Baptist roots, I found other Christians who were on the other end of the pendulum. They were into charismania. They were so in love with the gifts that they neglected the giver. And this was the church at Corinth. They were enamored by displays of God's power, but they failed to apply that power to holy and godly and united living. Some churches are like a fireplace with no fire. They're empty and cold. Oh, there's theological orthodoxy, but there's no life. Whereas other churches are a fire without a fireplace. A focus on spiritual gifts burns out of control. What we need is the fire in the fireplace. We need the fire of God's Spirit, but within the fireplace of God's Word. We want to see believers warmed, not burned. 
It's been said, as a dove climbs on two wings, likewise the Holy Spirit lifts the church on both the gifts of the Spirit and the graces, that is, the fruits of the Spirit. Well, in verse 2, he continues, You know that you were Gentiles, carried away with these dumb idols, however you were led. Now, the Corinthians were fascinated with the vocal gifts. We'll find this out later. Prophecy and tongues and interpretation of tongues. And for good reason. You see, before coming to Christ, they served mute idols or gods without a voice. They had bowed to chunks of wood and stone that were unable to speak. Dumb gods. Now they had embraced an audible God. The Christian God has a voice. The Holy Spirit speaks to us and speaks through us. No wonder the church had gotten carried away. And yet Paul warns them, Therefore I make known to you that no one speaking by the Spirit of God calls Jesus accursed. And no one can say that Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. Now every time you hear a preacher say, Thus saith the Lord. Don't assume that what comes next is actually from the Lord. It may or it may not be. Reminds me of the fisherman who cut a hole in the ice. He baited his hook. He was about to drop his bait when he heard a voice. No fish are under the ice. Well, he moved a few feet away, cut another hole. Again, he was about to lower his hook when he heard the voice again. There are no fish under the ice. He looked up to heaven and he shouted. He said, Lord, is that you? The voice spoke to him again. No, it's the ice rink manager. (laughs) We need to test the voices to make sure they're from God. Do they harmonize with God's word? Both the written word, the Bible, and the living word, Jesus, and his nature. Paul says no one speaking by God's Spirit will ever speak ill of Jesus. The Holy Spirit moves upon our hearts to affirm the lordship of Jesus and to call people to allegiance. He never denies the authority of Jesus. You know, whenever we study spiritual gifts, remember miracles can be counterfeited. The pagan priests in Egypt were able to duplicate Moses' miracles up to a point. The end times Antichrist will work lying wonders, we're told. Even Mormons today speak in tongues. The gifts of the Holy Spirit build up the body. They're good gifts, and that's why Satan does his best to imitate them. We're told in verse 4, There are diversities of gifts, but the same Spirit. There are differences of ministries, but the same Lord. And there are diversities of activities, but it is the same God who works all in all. And here Paul lays out three categories of spiritual gifts. First is what he calls gifts or motivations of the Spirit. These are listed for you in Romans chapter 12. These are born-again instincts that the Spirit births in us at our conversion. They help to shape our future life and our service for God. Well, the second type of gift is what he calls ministries. These are individuals, specific ministers who serve the body of Christ. 
Ephesians 4 lists four types of ministers. The apostle, the prophet, the evangelist, the pastor teacher. And then the third type of spiritual gift are activities. The Greek term is energio or energies. Verse 7 refers to these gifts as manifestations of the Spirit. These are spontaneous allocations of supernatural ability. Now Paul lists nine activities in the coming verses here, verses 7 through 10. But notice the preface. But the manifestation of the Spirit is given to each one. Realize spiritual gifts are a manifestation or a display of God's Spirit. They're not learned skills. Neither are they talents that we cultivate through practice. No, these gifts are an evidence of a power greater than ourselves at work in and through our lives. Once an old lumberjack was encouraged to purchase a chainsaw. He was told, you'll chop four times more wood with a chainsaw than with an axe. But after several outings with his new chainsaw, he was chopping less wood, not more. Well, in frustration, he returned the saw to the hardware store. Well, the clerk was surprised, but he cranked the chainsaw to troubleshoot the problem. Well, as soon as he cranked it up, the old lumberjack, he had a strange look on his face. He asked the clerk, what's that noise? You see, spiritual manifestations and gifts are like power tools. The Holy Spirit revs up supernatural spiritual capacities that enable us to do more and to do better for God. These spiritual gifts are available to all believers. And notice their purpose, verse 7. It states it, they are for the profit of all. When a Christian uses a spiritual gift, it's not to promote himself, It's to benefit the whole body. And this is a vital point. As we study spiritual gifts, we need to know why God gives them. For the pride of a few? No. For the promotion of the special? No. Paul is emphatic. Spiritual gifts are given by God for the profit of all. Well, in verses 8 through 11, Paul lists nine manifestations of the Spirit. And he organizes them in three sets of three. First, he talks about the gifts of wisdom, the word of knowledge, the word of wisdom, and the discerning of spirits. Then he talks about gifts of wonder, faith, and healings, and miracles. And then the gifts of worship, prophecy, and tongues, and interpretation of tongues. Well, this list of gifts begins here in verse 8. For to one is given the word of wisdom through the Spirit, to another the word of knowledge through the same Spirit. Now, knowledge is information. Wisdom is the application of that information. And we need both, don't we? A word of wisdom or knowledge is just that. It's a word. It's not the whole book. It's just a bit or a portion of what we need. Suddenly, in a perplexing situation, the Lord might give you a piece of the puzzle. It's not all we'd like, but it's enough to make sense of our situation, to know what's our next step. It's a word of wisdom. A word is like a flash of genius. Bible teacher Harold Horton describes these words of wisdom and knowledge as divinely granted flashes of revelation. Have you ever had an insight just roll across the screen of your mind? 
comes out of nowhere. It's from the Lord. Info you could have known apart from God. It comes as a word of knowledge or a word of wisdom. Verse 9, he says, to another faith by the same spirit. Here's a special allocation of faith. I've heard it said, nobody ever crosses a canyon in two steps. At times, it takes a leap of faith. And the gift of faith enables you to take that leap. It's a special faith given to you by the Holy Spirit that causes you to be bold for God. This is lion's den faith. This is giant slaying faith. This is water walking faith. This is mountain moving faith. There is a gift of faith. If you're in need of faith today, pray for the gift. To another, gifts of healings by the same Spirit. Now realize that ultimately God will heal all of our sicknesses. When we arrive in heaven, we're going to receive perfect health. No one will be sick in heaven. Aren't you glad? On earth, though, there are times when God doesn't heal. We don't understand this, but there are times when he just doesn't. Hey, we all die at some point, don't we? Most commonly when God heals, it's through natural processes. God has designed our bodies with amazing, rejuvenating capacities. God also heals medicinally through the skill of doctors. To me, the marvels of modern medicine are no less a miracle of God. And then on occasion, God heals supernaturally. There is a gift of healing. In the church, God uses folks to lay hands on the sick and pray for their recovery. And we've seen these miracles where God expedites the natural process or bypasses medical means. And he does what only he can do. He miraculously intervenes. Recently, God intervened for my son and healed Zach of COVID pneumonia. No one familiar now with his medical chart has denied a miracle occurred. But God also healed our friend Chris Castile, our brother. But he healed Chris by taking him to heaven. You see, God heals in both ways. And notice the double plural here. It's the gifts, plural, of healings, plural. Apparently, there are different types of healings. Physical healing, mental healing, emotional healing, spiritual healing. There are also different gifts or means of mediating God's healing, certainly through intercessory prayer, but also through the laying on of hands and through other means. Verse 10 continues the list. He says, to another, the working of miracles. If you believe Genesis 1 verse 1, God created the heavens and the earth, then you should be able to believe in miracles. For if God created space and time and matter and the laws governing nature, then he can suspend or override those laws when he desires. I never validated this story, wish now that I had, but I once heard Pastor Chuck tell of a girl who didn't have gas money to get to church one night. She really wanted to come. And so she took the garden hose, went out to her Volkswagen van, Filled the tank up with water. And just as Jesus turned water into wine, she asked the Lord to turn the water into gasoline. Well, Chuck said that when she finished praying, she got into her van and she drove to Calvary Chapel that night. 
God responded to her simple faith. Did that actually happen? I'm not sure. I wish I knew. But I believe it could have. Let's always be open to the miraculous. God wants to amaze us with his miracles. Billy Graham once wrote, As we approach the end of the age, I believe we will see a dramatic recurrence of signs and wonders which will demonstrate the power of God to a skeptical world. Just as the powers of Satan are being unleashed with greater intensity, I believe God will allow signs and wonders to be performed. I do too. Well, to another prophecy, to another discerning of spirits, to another different kinds of tongues, to another the interpretation of tongues. And if you want to learn more about speaking in tongues and interpretation of tongues, you'll have to come back next week. We'll talk about that when we get to chapter 14. But here Paul also mentions discerning of spirits. You know, we teach our kids how to read. But for kids to survive in this crazy world we live in, they need to learn to read between the lines. For not everyone is honest or straightforward. Kids need the discernment that goes beyond what is simply seen. And this is one of the gifts of the Holy Spirit, discerning of spirits. You know, the false prophet, he comes as a wolf in sheep's clothing. We're told Satan appears as an angel of light. And it's the gift of discernment that enables us to see behind the disguise. Verse 11, but one and the same spirit works all these things distributing to each one individually as he wills. You see, you or I don't get to pick the gift that we want. I mean, you can't say, well, Lord, you know, I think I'd like the gift of healing. Or sign me up for miracles, Lord. That sounds pretty exciting. That's not how it works. It's the Spirit who chooses what gifts to distribute to whom and when. See, spiritual gifts are ours to use, but they belong to God. It's His power, not ours. God's Spirit remains sovereign over His gifts. In fact, the Greek word translated spiritual gifts is pneumotikos, which means things belonging to the Spirit. This is why I don't believe that a spiritual gift is something you just kind of carry around in your back pocket and whip it out whenever you want to show it off. No, the gifts of the Spirit, they don't work on demand. They're God's gifts, administered by God's Spirit. Well, now that Paul has introduced us to the gifts of the Spirit, from here on he describes how they operate in church life. How they exist for the profit of all. We need to know and use our gift, but we also need to find our place. And so he writes in verse 12, For as the body is one and has many members, but all members of that one body being many are one body, so also is Christ. Now, if you're an adult of average size, here's what you accomplish every 24 hours without even really giving it much thought. Your heart beats 103,689 times. Your blood travels 168 million miles. You breathe 23,040 times. You inhale 438 cubic feet of air. You eat three and a half pounds of food. Some of you more. (laughs) 
You drink 2.9 quarts of liquid. You lose seven-eighths of a pound of waste. You speak 4,800 words. That's for the guys. For you ladies, it's much higher than that. You move 750 muscles. Your nails grow 0.000046 of an inch. Your hair grows 0.017 inches, if it's still growing. And you use 7 million brain cells. No wonder you feel exhausted at the end of a day. Your body is a miracle of engineering. It consists of several trillion cells and 10 major organ systems working in precise synchronization with one another. You see, the human body is an amazing blend of both unity and diversity. And so is the body of Christ. We're all many members, but we should work to function as one body. Say, look around at the people in the room today. I mean, really, just look around the people right around you here today. We are different folks from divergent backgrounds with varied gifts and with diverse callings. And yet God has placed us all together in one body. And in the next few verses, Paul describes our interconnectedness. And understand this idea of the church as an integrated whole was revolutionary to ancient minds. As a matter of fact, when you visit the ruins of Corinth, and I hope you will one day, a must-see is the archaeological museum. There is an exhibit there of terracotta or clay-baked figurines fashioned as body parts. In the display cases, you'll find legs and hands and eyes and ears and even female breasts and genitalia and internal organs, in fact. You see, the city of Corinth had a temple dedicated to Asclepius, who was the Greek god of healing. So when a person became ill, they made a replica of the diseased or broken body part, and they offered it as a sacrifice to Asclepius in hopes of healing. Thousands of such body parts have been found in the ruins of ancient Corinth. Now, this is strange to us, but it was in keeping with the assumptions of healing in the ancient world. Body parts were considered isolated and separated from each other. If an organ or an appendage became diseased, then the ailment was assumed to be confined to that particular part. Few people understood the interconnectedness of the human body. The pagans isolated the body's members instead of viewing the body's health holistically. But in contrast, Paul believed in a creator, in a designer who, whose imprint is on all that he touches, even our body. Though we consist of many parts, God made us one body. And the health of our body is determined by the cooperation of its members. See, the human body was built in a way that illustrates the body of Christ. And so he says in verse 13, for by one spirit, we were all baptized into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free, and have all been made to drink into one spirit. Notice our common spiritual starting point. We all start at the same place. All believers are born into God's family by the same spirit, by God's Holy Spirit. 
And here's where we need to clear up a bit of some confusion. Non-Pentecostals often point to verse 13 here to show how Paul uses spirit baptism synonymously with Christian conversion. And they're right. That's how he uses it here. The moment we're saved, we are baptized or we are initiated into the body of Christ. But they conclude that in the New Testament, spirit baptism always refers to conversion. But it doesn't. Non-Pentecostals believe that you receive everything related to the Holy Spirit at conversion. And thus there's no empowerment following. The moment you're saved, you receive all that you need. They don't accept a second blessing. But this is a misunderstanding of verse 13. Realize the term baptized is like the English term watch. It has multiple meanings. You see, a person can wear a watch. I can stand my watch. I can be watchful. And likewise, baptism has multiple meanings. It has, it's a word with different meanings. It can mean to initiate or to become part of. Like we say of a rookie quarterback taking his first sack. Well, he got his baptism. But the word baptize can also mean to engulf or immerse or to dip. What happens in water baptism when someone goes under the water and gets engulfed with the water? Now, whenever Paul uses the term baptism, it refers to conversion. Romans 6 says, by faith we are baptized into Christ. We're united spiritually into the life of Jesus. I now share in all that Jesus is and has accomplished. But when John or Luke or Jesus or Peter use the term baptism, it speaks of this immersion, not conversion. In Acts, Luke describes the outpouring of the Holy Spirit on people who were already believers with phrases like filled with the Spirit or baptized in the Spirit. Thus, throughout the New Testament, the same word baptize gets used in two different ways. It explains two different experiences. There is an initiation into Christ that's called baptism. But there is also a saturation with Christ that's also called baptism. You see, there is a spiritual empowerment available to Christians even after they believe. The Holy Spirit wants to fill your life with His power. And this is why I make such a big point of this. Because I don't want anyone to rob you of the vital baptism of the Holy Spirit. There is a power from on high that God wants to give to you. He wants to pour out His Spirit on your life and use you in supernatural ways. And I don't want anybody to rob you of that blessing. There is a second blessing. The first blessing is salvation, but we can be filled with the Holy Spirit again and again. Yet here, Paul is speaking of our initiation into Christ. When I convert to Jesus, I'm made part of his body. I become part of something bigger than myself. You see, spiritual baptism is like a merger. A smaller company gets gobbled up by a larger one. The smaller outfit is now under new leadership, with a new mission, with new resources, with new partners. And that's what's happened to us. We've gotten gobbled up by something bigger than ourselves. Hey, we're no longer a mom and pop. 
We're now part of Christ's church, the body of Christ. And so he says in verse 14, For in fact, the body is not one member, but many. If the foot should say, because I am not a hand, I am not of the body, is it therefore not of the body? And if the ear should say, because I am not an eye, I am not of the body, is it therefore not of the body? You see, one of the hindrances to harmony in the church is jealousy. The carnal Christian refuses to accept his place. If he can't play the position he wants, he takes his bat and ball and he just goes home. At church, we need to submit our individual ambitions for the greater good. Leave your personal agendas at the door, please. We don't serve on our terms. The Holy Spirit dictates our calling. I mean, it's like your foot grumbling over its roll. Man, it's hot and smelly in this sock. I'm tired of being treated like a heel. My soul is so weary, always towing the line. I keep putting my best foot forward and nobody notices. I've had enough of it. I'm putting my foot down. Boy. Or imagine your ear complaining. If I get pierced one more time. See, what if the members of your body became tired of playing their role and started competing with one another? You'd become spastic, uncoordinated, and you sure wouldn't accomplish much. And the same tragedy happens in the body of Christ when its members pursue their own agendas and refuse to cooperate with one another. The body of Christ becomes uncoordinated and incapacitated. Verse 17, if the whole body were an eye, where would be the hearing? And if the whole body were hearing, where would be the smelling? But now God has set the members, each one of them, in the body just as he pleased. If I told my little league team that everyone could play the position they wanted, I would end up with ten pitchers and maybe one shortstop. Everybody wants the glamour spots, but I'd filled a lousy team, wouldn't I? And the same is true at church. Here Paul paints a grotesque image. What if the whole body were an eye? Just a big eyeball rolling around the table. We'd all be blue. We could see, but with no feet or no hands, we couldn't go anywhere or do anything. And this is what happens to churches. They turn into one big eye. I want this. I deserve that. Some churches suffer from eye strain. We need to be Christ's body, led by His Spirit, not our own egos. Verse 19 adds, And if they were all one body, where would the body be? But now indeed, there are many members, yet one body. You see, the body of Christ is a blend of unity and diversity. And to stress one above the other is a mistake. We need a healthy balance of both. On the one hand, to overstress our unity robs us of our diversity. Hey, we are all different, and this is our strength. Each one of us has a unique contribution that we bring to the body. Years ago, I read of a major scientific breakthrough in Scotland. For the first time, scientists cloned a sheep 
they named, they named her Dolly. And I'll never forget, as I read the article, thinking to myself, this is no big deal. Churches have been cloning sheep for centuries. Often the church strips its members of their individuality in the name of discipleship. We conform them, not into the image of Jesus, but into our image. That's wrong. Here's a short little jingle. Be what I want, no more, no less, because I am right and no one else. Think what I think, do only what I do, then and only then can I fellowship with you. See, that's the attitude we have to avoid. Let's not overstress our unity, but neither should we overstress our diversity. At times, the health of the body of Christ needs me to express my individuality, yet at other times, the corporate health of the body is best served by me suppressing my individuality. There are Christians who never settle in and become part of a church because they're unwilling to swap their own personal agenda for the goals of the group. They insist on their own thing and they miss out on God's thing. This is why unity and diversity need to be balanced with maturity. Recall the gifts of the Holy Spirit are for the profit of all. This should be our motivation. And then he says in verse 21, And the eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you. Nor again, the head to the feet, I have no need of you. See, each one of us has a unique and specialized place in the body of Christ. See, God has given you gifts that can bless and benefit me. I, in turn, have been given gifts that can bless and benefit you. We all need to recognize that we need one another. At the close of World War II, entertainer Jimmy Durante was invited by Ed Sullivan to perform at a veterans hospital and to cheer up some of the wounded soldiers. Well, Durante stayed far longer than he had promised. Later, he explained what had inspired him. Jimmy pointed to two soldiers sitting side by side. Both men had lost their arm in the war, and together they clapped using their two remaining hands. The effort so moved Durante that he just couldn't leave. And this is an illustration of the church. For spiritually speaking, we are all disabled in some way. Where I am weak, you can make me strong. And where you're weak, I can be strong for you. Thus, God wants us all to see that we're better for him together than we ever could be apart. Did you hear about the big controversy at the first church of the hand tools? You hear about this? I mean, this was a big Donnybrook. Some of the members complained about Brother Hammer. Man, you're too forceful. You pound home your points and you nail the rest of us. But Hammer, he turned and pointed to Brother Screwdriver. Hey, I'm no worse than him. He just always goes around in circles. This angered the screwdriver. Well, what about Brother Plain? All his work is on the surface. He has no real depth, that guy. Well, Brother Plain shouted at Brother Tape Measure. Oh, you're so judgmental. You just measure people and size them up all the time. You always think you're right. Well, Brother Tape Measure, he then snapped angrily at Brother Sandpaper. He said, well, look at him. He's so rough and gritty, he rubs people the wrong way. Why don't you all just go back into the box? Well, that's when the master carpenter arrived. 
Jesus put on his carpenter apron and he began to work to build a pulpit from which the word of God was to be preached. He used the hammer and the screwdriver and the plane and the tape measure and the sandpaper and all the other tools, each in the right way at just the right time. Oh, finally, Brother Saul, he saw it. He rose up and he said to the others, Brothers, we are all tools of equal importance in the hands of the Lord. And so are we, friends. Verse 22 tells us, No, much rather those members of the body which seem to be weaker are necessary, and those members of the body which we think to be less honorable, on these we bestow greater honor. There is a tiny valve in your chest that normally closes, keeping harmful acids inside your stomach. But when that little fold of flesh, that valve, the sphincter muscle, weakens, the acid floats up into your esophagus. And the result is esophageal reflux. Or in layman's terms, major league heartburn. And speaking from experience, this is no laughing matter. It amazes me that the weakening of one tiny piece of human flesh can create such pain. It reminds me that every body part plays a pivotal role. In the body of Christ, you may be a tiny valve. But trust me, if you don't fulfill your role correctly, the whole body is going to suffer. See, there are parts of the body of Christ that, like that stomach valve, serve but are never seen. No one thinks of the unseen members until there's a problem. If a Sunday school teacher fails to show up on a Sunday morning, or if the sound man sleeps in, or if the cleaners miss a week, suddenly we all realize the importance of their role. Let's make sure a person doesn't have to break down to be appreciated. We need to go out of our way to honor the unseen parts. Verse 23, And our unpresentable parts have greater modesty, but our presentable parts have no need. I mean, the job a pastor does is conspicuous. I mean, people recognize his contribution. But with folks who serve behind the scenes, we need to be deliberate, very deliberate in our appreciation. But God composed the body, having given greater honor to that part which lacks it, that there should be no schism in the body, but that the members should have the same care for one another. Division is less likely if honor is divided equally among all of our members. And then verse 26. And if one member suffers, all the members suffer with it. Or if one member is honored, all the members rejoice with it. Hey, if I ex accidentally pound my thumb with a hammer, it won't just cause a swollen thumb. My entire body will begin to throb. When one member of the body hurts, then the whole body is in pain. Just as organs in your body are interconnected, so is the body of Christ. You know, it's been said, real fellowship doubles our joys and divides our grief. We ought to be either praying for each other or rejoicing with each other. We should share in both our pains and our joys. And then verse 27. 
Now you are the body of Christ and members individually. And God has appointed these in the church. First apostles, second prophets, third teachers. After that, miracles, then gifts of healings, helps, administrations, variety of tongues. Now back in verses 8 through 11, Paul listed nine spiritual gifts. They're repeated here. But here he mentions two more gifts that he didn't mention before. Helps and administrations. You see, the gift of helps is a supernatural knack for assisting someone without making them feel like you're taking over. They're truly a help. It's an ability to bring the best out in others and how we need this in the body of Christ. And the gift of administrations belongs to the person who can help organize and manage ministry. Business mogul Andrew Carnegie once bragged, Take away our factories, trade, avenues of transportation, and money. Leave us with nothing but our organization, and in four years, we'll reestablish ourselves. He could say that because his greatest resource was his organization. And likewise, spirit-inspired management is a powerful and needed tool in the church. Seldom does a church need more organization, but we always need better organization. And then verse 29, are all apostles, are all prophets, are all teachers, are all workers of miracles, do all have gifts of healings? And of course the answer is no. Paul is emphasizing diversity within the body. We all have different gifts and callings. And I have no doubt the most frustrating experience in the world is trying to be something you're not. When you feel forced to function in someone else's calling or try to mimic their gift, you're destined for misery. This is why we need to find our place and use our gift. For when we do, God blesses us in ways that we never dreamed. But notice here Paul's last two rhetorical questions. He says, do all speak with tongues and do all interpret? And the obvious answer to those questions is the same as it was to the five previous questions. No. And this is why I disagree with many Pentecostals who believe that everyone filled or baptized with the Holy Spirit will speak in tongues. Hey, tongues is a wonderful way to praise God and pray to God. And again, we'll talk more about it next week. And every believer should be open to speaking in tongues. But Paul is crystal clear, not everyone will. In some charismatic and Pentecostal circles, the gift of tongues is sort of worn like a badge of honor. It's used to separate the haves from the have-nots. If you don't speak in tongues, you're treated as a spiritually inferior person. And that's sad. We're going to learn later in 1 Corinthians that the gift of tongues is actually the least of the spiritual gifts. For Paul concludes in chapter 12 but earnestly desire the best gifts. And of course, that begs the question, what are the best gifts? <laughs> well, I believe it's whatever you need at the moment. That's the best gift. If I'm making a huge decision, then the best gift is a word of knowledge or a word of wisdom. If I'm interacting with a person I don't know, then the best gift is discerning of spirits. If I'm afraid, then I need the gift of faith. If I'm sick, oh, you know what the best gift is. It's the gifts of healings. And yet there is one commodity 
more important than all the gifts. For Paul concludes, and yet I show you a more excellent way. Which leads us to chapter 13. For sandwiched between the two great chapters on life in the body of Christ and spiritual gifts is the love chapter. For the greatest gift of all is love. Here's the surest way to know you've been filled with the Holy Spirit. You can speak with the tongues of men and angels, but if you have not love, you're just a clanging cymbal. Next week, we'll talk about love. Father, we thank you for your words to us this morning. And Lord, I pray for everyone here today that they would begin to discover their gift and that they would find their place in the body of Christ. Lord, I know that there are people here today who just sort of float in this church and out of this church. They just pop in on Sundays and then they're gone the rest of the week. They come, but they're not really apart. Lord, I pray that would change. I pray that your spirit would lead them and that you would guide them and you would help them to understand that we are part of a body, that we are part of something greater than ourselves and that there is an interconnectedness that we should seek where we rejoice in each other's joys and we pray through each other's pains, that there's a connection and a fellowship that if we don't find for our Christian experience we'll have something less than what you designed for us to have. Our Christian experience will not be what you intended for it to be. For you've placed us in a body. You've made us one. And we thank you, Lord. And we ask you to fill us with your spirit. And, and Lord, cause us, Lord, to find our place and use our gift. We love you, Lord. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.